Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. Hi, everyone. This is Mike Valentine, CEO for NetSmart, and I am uh, have the privilege today of uh, kicking off a podcast that focuses on a different flavor of population management than we've covered to date. So I'm uh, excited to have several folks from the Benchmark organization with me, and I'm going to ask Doug Beebe to um, give an introduction of the uh, organization, a little bit of the uh, context of the services covered and uh, get us kicked off here. So, Doug, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you. Hi, I'm Doug Beebe. I'm the president and CEO of Benchmark Human Services. I've been in the IDD behavioral health field for almost 40 years, and I've been the with Benchmark for eight and a half years. And this is a field of work that I'm really excited about, and I'd like to introduce some of the people who are making it happen. So, Sarah, would you like to go first? Yes, thank you, Doug. My name is Sarah Chestnut, and I'm the Director of Development Strategies for Benchmark Human Services. And I have been in the field for about eight years and with Benchmark Human Services for about a year and a half. Hi, I'm Ann Titus. I'm one of the Operational Vice Presidents for Benchmark Human Services. I've been at Benchmark, um, just hit my 30th year. My name is John Lovett. I am the State Director for Alabama. And I have been with Benchmark for about two years and in the field for 10 and looking forward to the conversation today. And now I will kick it back to our CEO, Doug Beebe. Thank you, John. Our organization started in 1960 as a not-for-profit that had always kind of looked forward and in 1960 was planning on sidewalk cuts and accessibility features in Fort Wayne. And we've always tried to stay on that cutting edge. And what has happened is we went from a base of day services and employment into working with the large state hospital that was here. And we were moved onto that campus to start doing day services. And when that hospital started closing, people started moving out into our programs, both in supported living and group homes in the 80s and the 90s. And it led us to eventually, we were one of the companies that actually profits from DOJ coming into places. And when they closed down the Indiana State Hospitals, had to develop programs for highly specialized people with extreme medical needs or extensive behavioral support needs. And so that led us into this more specialized field. And each of those led us then into IDD crisis and then behavioral health crisis. And then this population health piece that we're talking about today where we're taking our expertise and helping other providers lift up the level of their services, support very challenging people in the community without having those people return to institutional care. And so it's been an evolution of our services that started from our close linkage in a Fort Wayne community that has led to us doing these services in 17 states now and has spun off a lot of other services along the way. But it's been a great path and we're pretty excited about where it's going right now. Great. Great. You know, one of the things that we uh, have been covering in this series is the, the notion of population health. And as people start to focus on populations and what affects the overall health outcome and health status of a population, the more uh, we're seeing our behavioral health clients, our IDD clients, autism and other become part of the fold. 
And, you know, one of the interesting observations I've had across the base that we serve is more generally is better when it comes to populations, yet your model seems to evolve in a different direction of, you know, you focus on you know, the top 10% of severity or critical or acuity of the 10% of the population that represents behavioral health or IDD consumers. How did you evolve in that direction over time in your organization? In 2007, we were largely 85% Indiana and our board of directors took us, which was originally a not-for-profit and created three organizations to spread the mission. So we retained a not-for-profit, created Benchmark as a for-profit. And we also spun off a foundation that owns 60% of Benchmark and takes 50% of our profits to use to do growth in disability services in the community. About five to eight million dollars a year is what they're giving out right now. And so as we spread that mission, what we found was there's these niche populations that people have a very, very hard time serving. And as we went to states like Maryland and New Jersey and Missouri, we found we could do very well focusing on 20 to 40 people that no one else knew how to serve, develop a very specialized service um, with wraparound services, employment services, behavior services, create a really meaningful day and a good life for those people and also make a decent living off it. And it's evolved because that population where IDD meets behavioral health is just growing and growing and growing, and every state seems to have a problem with it. So we came up with a concept of we can't be in all 50 states doing services. So the building provider capacity kind of imports our approach and our knowledge to a team that supports multiple providers within another organization. And you find yourself in 17 states now. Um, we all know that Medicaid reimbursement looks very different in each state. How did you? pick the next state? Was it opportunistic? Was it you, you had some very strategic initiatives around where to go next? How did you uh, evolve into that? Yes and yes. Um, no. We, some of it was strategy. We intentionally have targeted some services. Some of it has been by RFP. And quite often now what happens is an organization or a state reaches out to us and says, we have a particular problem. Can you help us drive a solution? Um, which has led to some of the projects that we're doing now where there's a group of people that have had multiple provider failures, encounters with police, multiple hospitalizations, and they we got to get them out of that recidivism loop by providing stable housing, nutrition, and behavioral supports. And that's kind of where this has come from. Right. And as you think about um, where you stand today and your growth opportunities as services evolve, existing services that you have, the opportunities to enter other states. In the near-term horizon, say one to three years, where do you see the, the opportunities for growth in your organization? Hey, Sarah, you want to take that one? Well, I think we have identified several high potential opportunities, certainly continuing to expand the building provider capacity concept that Doug mentioned. We have some different modules within that that could be more focused on individuals and getting them out of the hospitalizations, EDs, incarcerations, and multiple provider failure system. Or we can focus more on the providers within a system and increasing their capacity to support individuals on a broader sense. 
But as you alluded to earlier, we really want to move into more of a population focus where we can take our expertise in supporting individuals with complex behavioral needs and complex medical support needs and uh, work with some partner organizations to do those medical services and uh, psychiatry services and things like that to really wrap around the individual, provide comprehensive care for them, and ultimately drive down the total cost of their care. So we think that's a really promising model that a lot of states are going to be looking to and managed care and health plans as well. And we are also seeing across the United States a lot of significant needs for supporting children and adolescents with complex needs. There's been a lot of media coverage regarding those populations. So I think with our extensive experience doing children's services and doing services for individuals with IDD and behavioral health, we can expand into services for children as well. And as you think about, uh, as you operationalize these different service lines and you come into market opportunities, whether in existing states or kind of net new operations, how do you see yourselves differentiating your services from maybe other providers that are in the regions? How do you differentiate yourselves? So John, you want to take that one? Yeah. So, you know, differentiation of our, I think our model and what we're currently doing, it's really a a blue ocean strategy. There aren't too many competitors in this market. So we're really uh, out here alone meeting a need that isn't currently being met. And so uh, what that does is it allows us to come in and partner with states and be a little bit more innovative. And so we're not usually within a rigid structure. And I think that's a lot of our success is you know, having started uh, a provider capacity building model in Arkansas within a managed care system, and then coming into Alabama, where we are currently, and operating with the state as our direct contractor and partner. Those have looked and evolved very differently, but have served very similar purposes to address this very niche community of people with, again, IDD, behavioral health, often duly diagnosed, that have this need or sort of this prerequisite for diagnosis, treatment, care that sort of underlies the ability to have a self-directed life or to uh, engage in a way that we would hope individuals would have choice in these these various things that we often start with as a provider. We're often starting with steps backward in let's get someone placed from an inappropriate placement and then let's get them stable in that placement. And then we can begin to work on some of these other things within their life. Uh, So that's really how we're different is there's really nothing else like us in the market currently. Yeah, I think that's a great story. And I know that you've each now used the the word innovation. As you think about innovation in the context of service lines, and this is something that as technologists we're faced with every day, because every day there's a new challenge and a new opportunity, and we could boil the ocean of things to potentially go focus on. How do you how do you pick your battles when innovation opportunities come to your front door? How do you know which ones are the right ones? And how do you, I'd be curious myself, how do you come to those decisions as a leadership team? Well, we've really worked on a prioritization of those. And Sarah really was an architect of a great model for us on how we're doing that now. So I'm going to turn this over to her. Yeah. So we've developed over the last couple of years a criteria list, so to speak, of 
we go through a checklist of each opportunity and how does this fit with our mission and our strengths and opportunities that we want to pursue. Do we already have a geographic footprint where this opportunity is? And if we don't, what would it take to get resources in place to provide supports there? And, you know, there are a lot of different things that we go through. I think one of the things that is both a challenge and a significant strength to us is that we feel we can serve people no matter what their needs are. And so it's very difficult for us to say no sometimes. But I think that just speaks to our breadth and depth of expertise and willingness to serve individuals no matter what it takes. Right. Some of our background, just to build on that, is the behavioral approach we use is based on MANT, which really is a, it uses the crisis cycle and Maslow's hierarchy of needs in addressing where people are in their crisis cycle. And where we've been evolving our viewpoint is we see more and more the entering diagnosis is not important. The needs the person has that has to be met is what's going to be driving this. So I think we're moving to what we would call a diagnostic agnostic approach to services, but everyone needs the same basic supports, nutrition, housing, something to do, someone to love them, places to go. Um, and so whether it's children, adults, behavioral health, IDD, underneath that all, we all have the same basic human needs. And I think that really drives a lot of our approach. Yeah, that makes a, a ton of sense. And just by way of background, I, I spent 15 years in the uh, acute care on the medical side and physician practice world. And, you know, that part of healthcare grew up, you know, genetically engineered to get people in and out of the system of care as quickly and efficiently as possible, right? So as a fee-for-service and in and out, very episodic. And the human services part of healthcare is the opposite. You know, the successful, most successful providers, I think, have taken a, a longer view like what you all have just described, which is, you know, the longer you're in the system of care, the better the outcomes are. And uh, I think that whole difference in mental models, it shows up in these population health models as well. Because if you think about population health for the medical side, you're looking at high acuity and cost and spend and how to minimize that. And when, you know, what you just articulated is, hey, I can do that, but I want to do that over a long view of a, a consumer or a person's uh, lives to give them the best outcome uh, in the most appropriate care model. So I think it's it's interesting to see the, the concepts of population health, you know, come together in the different flavors of uh, the healthcare ecosystem. Can I, can I ask Anne, we have a, several stories that relate directly to that, and I wanted her to going to storytelling mode for us. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we talk about success stories, there's so many, it's hard to pick one really um, because we do provide that continuum of care for folks. And so we're engaged and involved in their lives for a really long time. And so we get to see folks as they come into our services and 10, 12 years later where they're at. And sometimes it's unrecognizable, right. To see our folks um, just kind of evolve and, we speak often about a gentleman that we served. He was one of our first very significant um, individuals. All the the trauma, you know, the provider after provider, facility after facility, 
aversive treatment most of his life, um, restraints, food deprivation, all sorts of stories that really set people on a different path. And when he came into us, there was this kind of historical thing where you didn't enter his space, right? You, you didn't get close to him because, you know, staff who had Ron Workman's comp for three months and, and had, you know, long disabilities. And so we started to figure out really quick that the only touch that he got was from restraint. And so he craved some human touch and, and he got that by use of putting himself and others in situations where they would employ restraints. And so we just made a big commitment. Um, Unless it's life or death, we're not putting our hands on this guy. But how do we put our hands on him? How do we enter his space in a safe way that's comfortable for him? And so we started playing street ball in the driveway. You know, we started playing football and implementing some touch with him to people that he had learned to trust. Um, And it's interesting. He doesn't call his staff his staff. He calls them the guys. And so really to see him, you know, and when a mother says to you, you know, I feel like I could die now because I know my son's loved and taken care of. Um, and this is a person who's got a national history of <laughs> of just really, really bad things happening to him and him doing bad things to other folks. And so to see him kind of evolve and him not to be this really reputationally challenged person anymore is just super exciting and and fulfilling. And I think that's what we want for everybody. It's not why can't this person be served? It's what tools do we need to serve this person well? That's right. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing it. How do you do what you just said? How do you proliferate that ability to identify those particular situations and make sure that the other 17 states that you're doing business in, you you have the opportunity to have that same outcome. You know, I think it goes back to what Doug talked about. Our company is, um, we have a very strong mission. And and I think our mission is to serve folks, right? Um, And so no matter how you present us, our job is to figure it out. I also think Doug mentioned MANT. And that's something that I think is ingrained in our DNA that will treat people with dignity and respect. And I think once you do that, you kind of back in to walking in their shoes, understanding their trauma, understanding where they've come from. And then where do we go from here? And what do you need from us? So it's really a kind of a lifestyle approach instead of this treatment approach. You know, you're X diagnosis, so you need this. It really is is not important at the end of the day. Our job is to meet folks where they're at, to understand where they've come from and what they need from us to move forward. So I think it's just kind of ingrained in benchmark DNA and in MANT for us. Yeah. You know, I think people would aspire to have a culture, the DNA that is uh, as cause connected as what you just described. So congratulations. And, you know, I know it all that takes work and uh, culture is a byproduct of actions consistent actions over a long period of time. So congratulations on that. So those that choose to innovate also have the benefit of learning from things that didn't go that well. If you think about the kinds of things that you were super excited about, got yourself into, and learned a whole bunch about that was different than when you you started that journey, what are some of those stories that you could share with uh, the masses to benefit from the ground you covered? We don't have many failures, but when we do, they're often spectacular. 
<laughs> and I, I would say some of them have been, um, one of them in particular is we went into a state and we were bound and determined to serve the most difficult people they have. And in our organization, it's called people with um, challenging reputations. And we made a mistake with our model because we did not understand. We did these individual placements with a bunch of people into two and three bedroom apartments with the calculus that they would get a roommate down the road. And in this particular state model, you had to pay the room and board for the empty beds out of your provider funding. And we had well over a dozen people in that situation with several three and four person homes underneath it. And we were losing our shirts left and right. Great services, bad outcomes for us. And when I met with the state officials to talk about, you know, this was predicated on the fact that we would get more referrals and they were like, no one in the state is going to live with those guys. This is not going to happen. And so we ended up having to work with that state to transition everybody one by one over the course of a six months period. But for about two years, it was a huge drain on our resources because we had failed to go in and fully understand the model that we were working with and it made some assumptions that turned out not to be true. So that led us to like I used to do a lot of orienteering racing. And so we applied that here. When you do orienteering racing, you have a map and a compass and you find things in the woods. But when you do that, when you get good at it, you don't only do an entrance strategy, you do an exit strategy for everything you're doing. And so now what we learned from that state was when we go in, we have to set some markers for ourselves. And if we don't hit those markers, we have to work with that state to say, we're not going to be able to do what we told you we could do. And we're going to have to transition these people out because this isn't going to work. And that's that's a tough learning and something we don't want to do often. But one, I think, that works well in maintaining relationships with states and being completely honest about our strengths and our failures. Yeah, no, I think that is a great insight. Uh, we have this notion at NetSmart of uh, the concept of if you don't have a certain failure rate, then you're not trying to innovate enough. But also uh, with those failures, make sure you're failing fast and failing forward, i.e. learning from what you felt. I love your, you know, build an exit strategy as you're going in and be transparent with that, with your trading partners on how that plays out. I think that's a, a great lesson for all of us. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot. Uh, Dr. Lovett, we had a brief exchange before we started here, and, and you mentioned crisis services. And we all know that funding is coming to those kinds of services. And it's kind of a, a bridge between consumer populations, population health, and access to care in the behavioral health and human services world that has been needed for so long that just now getting funded. And I'd love for you to just kind of tell a story of how did that become a service line uh, for you all? And how do you see that playing forward for the organization as you grow forward? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that the sort of the national appetite for this or the preparedness of our country to really address this need full on with 988 federal funding that's come, all of this is coming to one moment where there's going to be a lot of dollars and a lot of focus in this area. And so I think naturally this was sort of in our hierarchy of our development opportunities but having gone that way with one of our first projects that I was involved with, it also sort of acts as the, the coin sorter of sorts. It's the collection bucket of all of these populations that we've spoken of, that if you are going to specialize in any population, 
being involved in this mobile or in this crisis diversion, crisis stabilization piece is really foundational to our system of care as a country. Whether that's mental health, behavioral health, ID, everyone is coming into this. And it's actually how one of our projects spurned the provider capacity building model. We had individuals coming into the crisis centers through mobile crisis units that were then unable to be served based on a specific diagnosis or a stacking of, you know, duly diagnosed with behavioral health, mental health. So we're not sure how to serve this individual. And, you know, I I really don't want to miss what Anne may have highlighted that wasn't caught, but she used the word how a lot. And uh, that's something that I think culturally and within our company that we often start with as a question. It's, It's never if. I never corporately from Doug all the way down, I've never heard the question asked if we could do anything. So we're having that sort of that culture and that mission, uh, missional underpinning of how are we going to address these needs? And I think that being presented with an opportunity like mobile crisis is a great one to then springboard into other opportunities and meet those needs because we tend to fall into spaces where needs aren't being met. So the states that I can think of that were actually providing services in various service lines, whether that's children's services or mobile crisis, crisis diversion, crisis stabilization, those are going to be needs that weren't previously being met by either existing providers or were not being met to the standard that the state had set for that service line. And so again, it's sort of the prerequisite to other business in states. And so I think that it was a natural business for us to step into. And I think it is going to springboard us into different service lines as we move forward over the next decade. To add to that, we did our first crisis program in Indiana in 2007, and we started in Georgia in 2011, and we have never left Georgia. And then the last recession saw the end of the Indiana program. And then ironically, we're back in Indiana doing a trial program again as a model mobile crisis response. And then we're also now doing mobile crisis response with a partner in Oklahoma and An offshoot of that mobile crisis response is the building provider capacity, which is meant to prevent people from getting into that crisis cycle altogether. And so we think that crisis, crisis related services are going to be very important for us and for the people we serve. Um, It's always a component that if you have people who are going back into state hospitals or into mental health placements or to jail, means there wasn't a good support system for that person that went into crisis. And we've got to do that wraparound service and keep people out of that high cost of care and back in the community where they belong so they can work on their dreams and their connections. Yeah. Well, you know, with the experience that you have in crisis management in total and the amount of experimentation that's going on right now at at almost every state level, I can see it as a huge opportunity for you to step in and play a role. So that sounds like your timing is uh, good and your backdrop of experience is even better. So just to twist to that, do you see the CCBHC funding as an opportunity for you as an organization, both in the markets that you're in today and and, uh, elsewhere? You want to jump on that one, Sarah? Sure. I absolutely think it is an opportunity and it's something that we are looking at closely. Uh, We do have a partner organization that is a CMHC, not currently a CCBHC, and I believe they have looked at it as well. So again, I think it also goes back to 
our experience and the things that we feel are strengths for our particular organization. And we have to make decisions about should we expand into these other opportunities or should we partner with organizations who want to pursue that particular funding stream or opportunity and then wrap our supports and strengths around those other partner organizations. But absolutely, it's something that we're looking into. Yeah, I, I would say that our client base and, you know, if we look at the populations across the entire U.S., I think everyone's having that thought right now because almost very, very few are in a position to own the entire definition of what a CCDHC is meant to cover. And so everyone is being faced with, do I expand? Do I have trading partners? Do I just play a role and be a contributor? But, you know, the fact that the dollars are flowing in that direction through the connection with the guns bill, I think people are just super excited to see the trend of more and more programs being funded in, in the markets that, that we collectively serve. So um, wait and see on that. Absolutely. If we could go back to something you were talking about earlier with your previous experience with the fee-for-service kind of episodic funding, I think that's going to be something that's really important as we're looking at crisis services and different models of crisis care, because in order to do crisis services and do them well, we have to have those teams available 24-7, 365, and they have to be ready to go at a moment's notice. And funding that through a fee-for-service model isn't conducive to having those teams available. I mean, it's no different than a fire department or EMS. They have to be ready to go and have funding to do that. So I think that's another thing as states, managed care entities, and payers are looking at those services that we're really going to have to focus on. And another thing that Benchmark is doing really well is we have brought on some consultants with Medicaid experience and uh, backgrounds in managed care to help think through some of those challenges and work towards solutions. And I think that that's going to be really important over the next few years as those federal funds are fading out. How do we continue to make those sustainable? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think um, in the meantime, we're going to see a lot of experimentation on the reimbursement model. So you know, there is no perfect PMPM, there's no perfect episodic, it's going to be a package deal. <laughs> you know, what other parts of healthcare would tell you is next to follow that is the upside risk and the downside risk of those capitated payments or those more inclusive fee structures. So we have all of that to look forward to. I'm going to pivot to something that you all have mentioned. And and I know, Doug, you, there was an article in the Open Minds publication around it was really the use of data and measurement systems. And I think the context of that one was really the use of NPS scores with your clients to measure success and outcomes. But, you know, you all uh, have been successful not only at the culture of creating the identity and the brand of Benchmark, but you, you do that not only through your actions, but, you know, measurement systems that tell you, you know, when you're doing the right things and when you're off course. And if you could just kind of articulate how do you think about measurement for the different programs that you're in and you know what you're doing today versus how you see that playing a role for outcomes and quality and differentiation going forward i'd i'd love to get your perspective on it just as a tangent from the open minds article yeah and i'll start on that and hand it over to john for some program specific stuff that they're doing 
But we have had a culture for a long time where we publish all of our quality outcomes across all of our programs on an annual basis. We gather them quarterly for the senior execs on our team. 30% of any incentive payments we get is based on our quality metrics and our outcomes um, that we report to the board. So we've made those metrics um, really part of it. Some of them are KPIs, actual performance metrics. Some of them are more, we have a goal to achieve X. And if we achieve X, such as a new contract in crisis was one of our goals, that goes on the, the dashboard as well. So we've created dashboards and measurement systems across multiple programs. All of our programs have base performance measures. And even our infant and toddler programs, several states um, have performance metric reports that they apply to their outcomes. Our family preservation in Indiana has the same thing. And what we always want to do is we want to be the A students, right? We want a good report card. We want to show that we're driving the best outcomes of everybody. And, you know, we're kind of competitive that way. But I think it is proof of model when you are hitting every marker a state or an MCO puts in front of you on a regular basis. And I think we let that drive our measurement system, but doesn't necessarily change the way we're doing the services. We just know that we have to attend to that piece. And John, you want to talk about some of the stuff you've been doing in Alabama and Arkansas? Absolutely. So, you know, when it comes to this quality outcomes measurement, Mike, I think you're going to clearly understand from even your time at NetSmart how difficult the coordination of all of that can be, especially when you don't own all the pieces of the pie there. So when you're not every component of the system of care, it can be very challenging. And I think going back to some of the lessons learned, that's definitely one of mine is that we don't own all the things that I need to measure. And so making sure that we have things in place that will allow us to see both qualitatively and quantitatively that we're making the impact that we say we're making. And so we didn't have certain things in Arkansas and then we've learned and now we have certain things in Alabama. For instance, that being uh, access to their incident management software. And so being able to get in and look at some of these critical incidents and then track those longitudinally to see Are we seeing a statistically significant decrease in these key areas that we're looking for and these interventions that we're having? Are they having the effect? And then not only are the interventions having the effect, but doing the qualitative sampling of the DSP or the CEO of the provider organization to say, do you feel more competent, more capable? Is the training and the support that we're giving you meeting those needs beyond, again, what the data may show? Because we know that the data can track positively or negatively, but that once you add that qualitative richness to the data, it really allows you to tell the more full picture. And so that's the approach we've taken. But I would say, I think the future for us and the future for this field is integrating that into a package so that we can all communicate with one another, so that we can all log in and share both ways, both our outcomes data and theirs, for the betterment of the individual served. I mean, this is, if we're going to try to provide the, the greatest care for the individuals, then we would all partner together to share that type of information. And so that's where I hope we can begin to steer this thing. But right now we're doing that on a per state or a per project basis. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, interoperability, you, you kind of describe or alluded to the fact that even in your own environment, there's islands of data that can exist. and 
then when you're taking a longitudinal view of the patient or consumer, you're, you, you introduce more islands of data. And, and the whole notion of interoperability is building a head of steam where there's more and more sharing between systems. It's not perfect yet. But just a point of context, we went from probably about 3 million transactions between our solutions and other solutions about five years ago, six years ago. And this year will be over 3 billion transactions. And I would say 75% of those transactions are healthcare providers outside of the context of human services looking for data from, uh, from you all. And for, for the exact same reason of what you just articulated, the, the long longitudinal view of a patient. And so we all need to get better uh, in order for that to happen across the country. And we're making a ton of progress and the systems are making a ton of progress to support the demand of the providers as well. So totally agree with that. So I'll just end with, um, actually, I have two questions. The first one is more of an organizational one. I think people will be dying to, to ask you. I'm betting you get it all the time, but you're kind of a unique bird with a for-profit, a not-for-profit, and a foundation. If you could just articulate what drove that decision and how has it worked for you as, a, as an organization, you know, when you combine that with your cause-connected culture, it's pretty rare. So I'd love for you to shine a little light on, you know, how that came to be and and how it's worked for you. From the outside looking in, it looks pretty good. But if you could uh, articulate that, I'm sure there's lots of people who'd love to fully understand that. The key to it was we had a very active, very business-oriented board in the 2000s. And a couple of the leaders of that board felt that we were wasting an opportunity. We had a not-for-profit with $30 million in assets and $6 million in debt. And they said, we can use this to spread the mission further and faster. And so they created the not-for-profit foundation and Benchmark was created to be an entrepreneurial growth engine to do innovative things, move quickly, responsibly, very low overhead, fast acting group. And so when that was created, um, and Anne was part of that, I was not here yet, we started going into more and more states and finding opportunities where they hadn't existed before. And I think what it did is gave people the courage to go. And the second reason they did that was the board recognized that to compete with some of the big for-profits that were coming into the market with stock options and all the other stuff they had, we had to create a culture and an environment that would attract the best talent and keep the best talent. Originally, the, the one of the main motivations was to keep the core of Benchmark in Fort Wayne as a key business within this community. It's still one of the top 20 biggest businesses in Fort Wayne, but it also has allowed us to branch out over time and bring in these brilliant minds that you've been hearing from today that we've been able to recruit and attract and keep. Anne is the only one of us that grew up within the organization. So I'm going to see if you want to add anything to that. <laughs> um, yeah, the organization. So I've been here 30 years and what we've done in those 30 years is, is amazing. From being a little small nonprofit in Fort Wayne, Indiana, just doing day service to growing this company across Indiana, across the country and, and seeing programs like provider capacity and crisis come on. You know, as a residential provider, we're on the receiving end of individuals who've struggled because they haven't had, you know, committed providers who are willing to 
make that investment and resource. And so I think, you know, having the company kind of grow and move into these different models, we've really kept our nonprofit mission. It doesn't feel any different than it did 30 years ago. It just feels bigger. And, you know, you feel proud to work for a company that's willing to take risks for an individual. You know, there would have been no way 30 years ago, I would think that we would be doing what we are doing today. But it's a really cool service, not just for, you know, states, but for people, for families who have been struggling to find something for the person that they love. So it's been a unique um, (laughs) shift over those last 30 years, but definitely necessary. And I, you know, I feel proud to work for a company that's willing to take a chance and willing to be cutting edge and willing to, to let employees even go out and try something new and do something innovative. So the reorganization created a culture that, you know, is still our core of being mission driven, but really pushed us into a business model as well. And then just really the creation of foundation to see our our work be spread in the community is pretty impressive. Yeah, it certainly is. And congratulations on it. It's a good, I can speak firsthand, it's good to have a historian in the organization to fact check people every now and then, because sometimes we forget about some of the ditches we found ourselves in at points in time. So yeah, the trifecta of your model has certainly, from the outside looking in, uh, seems to have been very effective for you all. Okay, we're going to land now. And just one last question. You covered a lot of ground in the last 30 years. What do you see the next five or six years? There's a ton of change going on. There's more funding than this part of healthcare has seen in a very, very long time. What's on the horizon that you are the most excited about when you get up every day? Well, I'm excited about the directions our development team is taking us and where we're going with some of these complex care populations. So I'm going to let Sarah wind this one up for us because she's got a great vision of where this is going to go. Yeah, I would just say, I think we see unlimited potential and opportunity. Like you said, with the funding being at unprecedented levels, there are also needs and gaps in care that are at unprecedented levels that the COVID pandemic and other forces just came together to really highlight. And so I think there are a lot of unmet needs that are now in the forefront that we have an opportunity to address and take our mission and philosophy of serving individuals, no matter what their needs are and and how can we do that, not if, like we said earlier, that that's really an opportunity that has never presented itself in the way that it is currently. So I think that the sky is not even the limit. Space is the limit at this point. So I think it's it's a really exciting time. There are a lot of different ways that we can go in terms of continuing to serve individuals with complex needs, serving individuals in crisis, serving children, and and making sure they have access to care and that populations that were previously marginalized can really have services and access they wouldn't have previously. So it's very exciting. And uh, we're looking forward to the opportunity and the challenge. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, again. I think it's a great story. There, there will be, uh, I think, a lot of interested parties in learning more about how your journey has played out. So thank you for sharing it. All right. Thank you. 
At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.